And good afternoon, Chuck Morse here. Thanks for joining me, Left Right Radio, every afternoon, around 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. And my guest is Mark Joseph. He's the author of Rock Gets Religion, The Battle for the Soul of the Devil's Music. Um, Mark is um, a, a, a movie producer, a film producer, a, a record producer, media producer. He's worked in uh, music and film. He's a columnist, talk show host, and author. Um, Mark, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thanks, Chuck. Good to be with you. Okay. You know, it's it's nice to talk about rock and roll as opposed to the usual everyday news and uh, and political stuff for once. And um, well, uh, what the heck, right? And what, what, what grabbed my attention with your book is because I've always heard about rockers who are sort of um, closet conservatives, you know what I mean? Closet Christians. I don't want to really come out and do that. And a couple of people come to mind, Alice Cooper, but also um, Steve Perry from Aerosmith recently came out and, and, and admitted that he's a Republican. And it was like uh, in Boston, it was a kind of a, a, a flurry of, um, of uh, you know, raised eyebrows on that one. Um, is that Joe Perry or Steve Perry? Joe Perry. I'm sorry. Thank you. Got it. Got great, it. Rock, great rock guitarist. Um, and you talk about, you know, whether or not um, conservatism, whether or not Christianity could be um, compatible with rock music. And, and, and is it becoming the uh, maybe to a certain degree, a new religion that is making its way into uh, rock and into music in general? Um, I think that it's safe to say that that the, when I think of religion and rock, um, I think of um 1960s new age you know neo-pagan culture um maybe even a, a couple of little hints of satanism if anything um what say you with regard to um the general cultural zeitgeist of rock with religion as we traditionally perceive it and how is it that uh, more conservative and christian voices are beginning to emerge Sure. Listen, I don't doubt that there could have been some uh, Satanism going on. I think there was. But for the most part, uh, I think rock and roll's early stars were, you know, were average Joes who just wanted to play this great music. And um, but I say that rock and religion got off to a rocky first date in the 50s, especially. Mm. Uh, I think their religious leaders and parents. I mean, imagine being a parent in uh, 1965, 66. I mean, you were just inundated with so much new stuff. Right. There's the there's the pill. There's the Vietnam War. There's rock and roll. There's so much coming at you. I think you just didn't know what what was good and what wasn't, and it was hard to figure this stuff out. And I think parents were watching the mesmerizing effect rock music was having on young people and feeling threatened and religious leaders were feeling threatened. And so the natural knee-jerk reaction was to say, this is all evil, it's the devil's music, and we <laughs> heard this beat back in the jungles of Africa and, you know, crazy stories like that. Sure. And and I uh, just get carried away. And I think some of the rock guys went along with the ga the gag. It's like, okay, yeah, we're Satanists. Well, I, you know, I, I've worked with Gene Simmons of Kiss. He's no Satanist. He's just, uh, you know, he, but I think they took the pose, you know, and... Um, Right. We would we would hear stories when we were kids that Kiss stood for Kings and Satan's service and you know that kind of craziness. Yes, so I think everybody everybody got a little carried away. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, religious leaders sort of forgot that rock music is is a neutral medium for the most part. 
I mean, if you want to make an argument to me that rock music damages plants and classical music helps <laughs> plants, I got, that's a different argument, and we'll have that debate sometime, and sure. I'm not going to argue against science. But as a general rule, uh, this art, uh, art is neutral, and it's whatever you put in it. And so if you're singing about uh, one-night stands or the devil, sure, it, it may not be healthy. But if you're singing about positive things and life-affirming things, then, then it's great. And so I think it took people a while to figure that out. Uh, and that was then followed by uh, when Christians did embrace rock music, they did it in the context of a Christian subculture. Right. Uh, so what happened there was in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you had all these artists who were really pretty good, actually, but they never got past the Christian music subculture and they never got to the wider music culture. Mm -hmm. And so part of what the book is about is right around 2000, you see a fundamental change. And especially, there's four factors, Chuck. One is American Idol had a really tremendous impact. Uh, so some of your favorite bands, let's just say you're an Eagles fan. You think you discovered the Eagles in 1975, but you really didn't. The Eagles were discovered for you by a group of five to ten uh, you know, gatekeepers in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And when they decided the Eagles were, were okay, then they brought them to you. If they didn't like a band, they didn't bring them to you. And uh, one of those guys is Clive Davis. And I talk right. in the book about Clive Davis, uh, that a Christian pop star, or a future Christian pop star named Keith Green, went to audition for Clive in New York City, didn't pass the audition, didn't get past the gatekeeper, and so he had to go into Christian pop and became a Christian pop star. Now, so there's that process. And, uh, you know, let's just say that Clive Davis maybe doesn't share many of the conservative values that people right. in the heartland do. So the people that he's letting through the process, you know, are a certain kind of people. They're not very traditional in many, mm -hmm. in many cases. Uh, and Keith Green is the best example of that. So what happens with American Idol, it breaks up the entire paradigm of a couple of people choosing our pop stars because now our pop stars and rock stars are chosen by the American people through the voting process of American Idol. So suddenly a lot of artists who I think I would contend would not have made it through that process do make it through. Carrie Underwood, Daughtry, Chris Allen, dozens and dozens of artists now, uh, they can't be sidelined by the gatekeepers. And so now you have an entirely different class of pop and rock stars who are very much more traditional, uh, many times very devout Christians, and so you've got a different uh, a different pop star and rock star class coming in in the 2000s. Interesting. So in a way, it's the um, the democratization of music and of rock and the availability of um, various media modalities like the internet and um, things like Instagram and and whatnot to that 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 a, a musician can can really launch their own career. They can market themselves. They can make connections and build a, a following going directly to people as opposed to, as you say, this select group of gatekeepers. I mean, Clive Davis's idea was um, Janis Joplin. And, um, you know, there was a kind of an image that they were looking to craft and that people would have to fit into that image, I suppose, in, or, in order to be um, to reach this approval. And that image was, you know, kind of a, a hyper, a secular, hypersexualized image. Um, uh, you know, the, the 60s, you know, we talk about religion. I mean, the religion, I think, first of all, one of the avatars of of a 60s religion, and I'm not criticizing it here, was um, would be George Harrison. Right. Introducing Indian Eastern uh, philosophies into into the public sphere. 
and, and doing it in a very broad way that was embraced by a lot of people. The second group I think of that, that, that epitomizes that's Led Zeppelin, right? The song remains the same. Their rock music, I mean, they were into, you know, runes and, uh, and Nordic kind of stuff and, uh, you know, very tarot and all this other business. And, um, you know, I think the message that went out there was um, not necessarily wholesome. I mean, as much as I love the Beatles and, and like anyone else, you know, they, they glamorize drug use. And I know a lot of people who are not alive today because of that. So, you know, in a way, the um, perhaps had there been a little bit more of a democratization back then with uh, uh, an equal playing field for people who wanted to have a, have a means uh, by which to present their music, there might have been a little bit more diversity of the influence. It wouldn't have been this monolithic, massive influence by these hand-picked uh, musicians and bands, and and as you point out, they were handpicked by record companies who had not only an interest in making a buck, but also an interest in molding a certain means of um, the culture, I guess. So yeah, I mean, look at it. it's uh, our pop culture should be open to all kinds of different points of view, and I a large chunk of pop culture history. We just weren't hearing from uh, the very religiously devout. And, um, you know, it was popular to say, well, those artists are subpar. That's why they're off in their little league. But I found that wasn't the case, as I would get to know some of these artists and interview them and work with them, in some cases produce records with them. I found that they were actually very talented. They just hadn't been given the shot. And um, what I found, uh, there was some similarities to what used to be called the old Negro baseball leagues that uh, huh. African-American players were not subpar. Uh, they were actually very good. They just weren't given a chance, the majors. As I researched the Negro, it wasn't just kind of uh, wanted to keep black. It was actually the owners of the Negro baseball leagues who liked the arrangement the way it was because it was their chance to earn a living sure. by exploiting this, uh, this racist impulse. And I found that there were Christian music labels that were similarly preventing their artists from crossing over uh, yep. because they didn't want this to shut down this business. But really, American Idol, a lot of these trends just overpowered them. And uh, so what we have today, and the second and third and fourth examples beyond American Idol, is you had uh, the second example is you had younger artists like a Justin Bieber, who uh, was raised by a devout Christian mom. But instead mm -hmm. of going to Nashville and joining Christian music, he went mainstream and and. And again, you see Justin's ups and downs in the public square, but he is a, you know, he's a very religious kid. He's very pro-life. Uh, and then the third example would be artists like Alice Cooper, who, um, you know, theology informs everything we do. And in the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, we had a theology of kind of escapism. Uh, if you become a, a born again Christian, then you need to get out of the secular music culture. What is the, the thinking at the time in many cases? And so, for instance, an artist like B.J. Thomas um, had a born-again Christian experience, leaves his label and goes and signs with a Christian music label and records there for 10, 15 years. And the problem is you're removing yourself from all your fans who right. don't listen to Christian music. So when Alice Cooper comes along and he uh, comes back to his faith in a very strong way, and the first thing he does is go to his preacher, a preacher out in Arizona, and says, you know, what do I do now? And uh, the interesting thing is that instead of the, uh, the get out model, 
that have been uh, followed so many times, his preacher says to him, does, does God make mistakes? And Alice uh, presumably says, well, I don't think so. And he says, well, God made you to be Alice Cooper. So go back out there and be Alice Cooper. And so instead of cutting his hair, going back to his real name and singing hymns, he goes right back to being Alice Cooper. Oh, that's amazing. Time informed by a Christian view of the world. No, that's amazing because, uh, you know, I know I'm being a little general here, but my my main criticism of the sort of the Christian subgenre for music back when it was beginning and maybe the 80s is that it tended to be, I don't mean, I mean this in a generic sense, it was too Christian-y. You know what I mean? It was like the, all the lyrics were like exalting Jesus and, you know, very overblown because, you know, with music, you can't hit people over the head like that. And, you know, it's a much better way to reach people is just by, you know, example and by, by, by having values and, and then being yourself and, and doing it. And in a way it's, it's more effective to sort of work it in, in a way without a sledgehammer, but more just as part of it. You know, when, when they did that, I always thought that, you know, I'm glad that they're, they're preaching, but they're missing the bigger creative piece here. You know, this isn't just a soapbox to preach. It's, it's also music. You know, the, the yeah. music is the message really ultimately and who they are will be conveyed through the music and, and will reach a lot more people than if they try to climb up on a soapbox, which is great for preachers, but this is, we're talking music here. So seems like it's, yeah, um, yeah go ahead. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think you're right. There's a, there is a, a bit of an inside baseball quality to a lot of the, the Christian music that can be, well, what happened was, there would just be pressure from Christian music labels to, hey, could you be more explicit? Could you make every song about God? And, you know, it just it's not the way humans interact. Like if, right. if, if you and I sat down on a park bench and you wanted to tell me your story, you know, you would tell me your life. And it wouldn't just be about your faith only. Now, your faith colors everything in your life. For sure. But uh, some of these records became unnaturally uh, dogmatic and religious. And um, so I, I think what you're seeing now and Alice's. So one of Alice's first albums after his conversion is called The Last Temptation. And if you if you listen to that record, it's very interesting. It's not 10 songs about God, but it, there are a couple and his faith permeates everything he says and does. It's just not uh, 10 hymns. Interesting. And I think that. Uh... I don't know how he's doing in terms of chart wise, but I'm sure that, you know, with, with a broader, as we've said, democratization of music, there's a place for a, a lot more people. And um, and one can reach a, a, all sorts of different audiences. You can never tell with music. But, um, you, you know, on the other hand, sometimes a, a more explicit um, message of faith does reach people. I mean, I mean, to bring him up again, George Harrison, My Sweet Lord. It was a huge hit. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, there was a song, what was her name? Jane Osborne, um, God is Watching You. Fantastic. Huge hit. Joan Osborne, yeah. Joan Osborne. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, no, there's no problem with those songs. Uh, the only thing that I would take issue is, is this poor, those songs happened in the mainstream context. And they didn't happen, you know, George Harrison's ha song didn't happen like, in uh, Hindu rock or whatever you would call it. It right. happened in the mainstream. So really what I'm arguing for is th these expressions are fine, but let's have them happen in the public square where we can all debate them and listen to them. And sometimes there's, sometimes there's a Christian impulse to take my marbles and go home. 
If I don't like the fact that you wouldn't play my song on the radio, then fine. I'm going to leave and start my own radio station with all my Christian brothers and sisters. And it's much more difficult work to stay put and say, hey, I, I want to be played. You know, there's a hit movie out right, right now called I Can Only Imagine. And it comes from a song called I Can Only Imagine. And that song was created by and for Christians. It was supposed to stay in the Christian music industry. The problem was a bunch of housewives in Dallas and began to request the song on the mainstream radio station there in Dallas. Right. So the mainstream radio station had began to start playing. I can only imagine it became this nationwide sensation. Hmm. And so it, it's important that uh, our discussions happen in the public square and that uh, these artists are allowed to influence everybody in the, in the mainstream. And, and, and in a way, that song is an example of how you know, in a way, ultimately, it's the music, it's the song, you know, right. it's, it's the voice, it's the musician, it's the experience. And that um, if someone wants to convey who they are through the music, and they do, then that's, that's a plus to the whole thing. And, and I think that it reaches a greater significance, because particularly younger people are looking to connect with a bigger meaning in life. They're not, uh, you know, they, they, they're rejecting some of the, um, the ethos of the '60s, which was which was uh, you know hedonism and materialism, and you know they, I mean that's part of things, of course, and you know you can't get around the fact that sexuality is a part of music. You know somebody has to look good to do it. I mean that's part of it, but you know there's more of a a, a broader meaning, a greater context to a lot of the people that are now um, are coming into the scene now. Um, Mark, how are some of these Christian musicians being received, if you will, by the old guard, by the establishment, by the, the old gatekeepers, and by the uh, kind of the mainstream uh, music media? Well, funny you should ask that because the old guard are, you know, starting to go into nursing homes. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a new group giving way. And I give an example in the book that's very interesting in the contrast that Rolling Stone had uh, refused to run an ad uh, by, a, I think it was a Bible company that wanted to take an ad out. And they said mm -hmm. no, but then Blender said yes. Um, also, I give an example in the book of in 1973, Rolling Stone ran this review of Mylon LeFevre's album called Over the Influence. And uh, the reviewer was ranting about how Mylon won't stop talking about, you know, God and Jesus. And uh, the reviewer said something like, you know, he he's, uh, keeps singing about this effing ghost Jesus. Well, fast forward to the year, to the 2000s, and there's a review, I believe it was in Spin magazine, of a group called Switchfoot, which are very devout Christians. And instead of ranting about the effing ghost Jesus, the reviewer just said, look, this is a great record. And at the end of it, he says, uh, as if to, to, you know, to wrap up the review, he writes, in quotes, your turn, Satan, unquote, as if, hey, God made a great record. Now it's your turn, Satan. And so <laughs> I, I think there is an open mindedness there that wasn't there before. Uh, as much as you think we're in an age, people may think we're in an age of uh, Christians being persecuted and such. And not to, you know, not to say that doesn't happen on occasion. But we are in a more tolerant area in the entertainment business where people are, are more transactional. Hey, is this a great record? Great. Let's listen to it. They're less dogmatic, and there is the kind of the secular fundamentalism that raged at periods in American history and pop culture. I don't find it's as prevalent. And so uh, if you make a great record, uh, 
they're like, great. Is it a great movie? Great. Um, so I think there's a, a more of an open-mindedness to that sort of material. I also think that there is uh, something about particularly rock music that appeals not just to a, a religious side of us, but it, it's a very individualistic thing. It's, a, it's kind of the creating yourself, picking yourself up by the bootstraps and going a little bit outside of conventional authority and, and making a statement that's unique. And that's a very, I think, not only a very natural tendency that's, that's positive in any performing art or in any form of art, but it's a very American thing. It's, a, you know, it's like we're a nation of individuals. You know, you get up, I mean, Elvis Presley comes to mind, right? You know, you create something for yourself. You, you, may, you invent yourself and you, you do it in a way that fulfills your own image and, then, and it's genuine and people connect with it. And I think that um, music lends itself to that generally. I think rock particularly lends itself to that, the swashbuckling individual. And uh, that, in, in, if you think about it, it, it contradicts this kind of controlled thing that presented itself as alternative that emanated out of the 60s, where everybody had to be a certain look and they had a, you know, they, they were the gatekeepers and all of that stuff. So, you know, we're, we're seeing more individuals coming up and expressing themselves and being real and being genuine and being what artists should be, um, you know, creating things out of their souls. Um, anyway, Mark, what, what are you, uh, and again, I want to mention Rock Gets Religion. It's available at, um, at Amazon and at, at World Net Daily Books, who's your publisher. Um, what, what are you working on presently, Mark? Uh, yeah, I, I'm producing a number of films. I have a film coming out actually this week uh, called Silence Patton, about a uh, documentary about General Patton. Uh, oh, more films coming out this fall. Um, I'm also writing books. I've got uh, other books in the works. And so generally I spend my day uh, producing films and then our, our firm also uh, markets other films as well. But this is definitely the last in my rock books. I, this is the third book in, uh, in a trilogy I wrote uh, back in uh, 1999. I wrote uh, The Rock and Roll Rebellion. Uh, the subtitle was Why People of Faith Abandon Rock Music and Why They're Coming Back. And then in 2003, I wrote uh, Rock Gets Religion. And so this is the third and, and final, uh, and I'm, I'm moving on from this topic. But uh, it was 25 years, basically, of working in this area in terms of rock and religion. And uh, I've seen it happen in my lifetime. I didn't think I would see what's happening today. I, I didn't quite, um, the, the walls of separation that were between uh, Christian music and mainstream music are really pretty much gone now. And that Christian music industry really doesn't exist except for, you know, worship, church music, worship music type thing. Most mm. of those artists have gone into the mainstream now. Amazing. And I think that uh, when Chance the Rapper, thank God, and during his uh, uh, Emmy, uh, that, that sent shockwaves. And that also made the idea mainstream. And, and we could look back at people like Aretha Franklin. I mean, she was she was born and reared in the church. And that, that whole sensibility, I think, um, came through her music. There, there, um, have, there have been some mind-bending moments when Chance the Rapper was singing How Great Is Our God at the Grammys, mm -hmm. uh, when Justin Bieber is being scolded for being pro-life by the old ladies on The View, uh, when, Van, when Van Halen, mm -hmm. uh, in the credits of the Van Halen 3 record, they thank R.C. Sproul, the theologian. Uh, there have been some uh, weird pop culture moments in the last 15 years. Oh, it's fun to watch. 
And uh, and Mark, also, uh, please be in touch with me about Patton. I'm a big fan. You know, right. we would have won, we would have won World War II against both both uh, socialist experiments had Patton had his way. We'll anyway, do your copy. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, Mark Joseph, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. It's it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. And take care.